Please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And we've uh, been going through the Pentateuch in our church life. And we were in Genesis 17. And we came to the, the story of uh, the, the covenant with Abraham being affirmed and the sign of circumcision being given. And I, I mentioned that as the elders and I talked uh, Several months ago, as we kind of thought about our, our church calendar, we thought this would be a good time to talk about uh, baptism and about uh, church membership and about the Lord's Supper. We kind of spend a, a week on each of those things, and so uh, just one Sunday on each. So this is my second one Sunday on baptism, and in a few weeks will be a third one Sunday on baptism, because we are not going to get this done this morning, and uh, that's uh, hopefully okay uh, by by God's grace. And I've gotten a lot of questions from many of you throughout the week about what we talked about uh, last week, and I appreciate those questions, so grateful for them, and I appreciate um, not just the questions, but the tone of the questions was very encouraging, and so I know this is an issue in which there's a, a lot of differences of opinion, we'll talk more about that as we go on, and so just encourage you to continue to, to think through these things, and there's kind of three truths about baptism we've been discussing. We began discussing them last week. We're going to do a little bit of a recap. There were some questions that people had. I'm going to try to go through those very quickly, the kind of first one, and then a little bit, we got, kind of got in the second one last week. We're going to finish up the second one, Lord willing, start talking about the third one, and then finish up the third one in two weeks. Next week is Sanctity of Life Sunday. Two weeks we'll finish up the kind of third point, talking about uh, baptism being for only believers. And then then we'll just spend some time asking and trying to answer some practical questions. And there are a lot of practical questions that people had and love those. And I hope this isn't just some a dry academic discussion as we think about baptism and, and the theology behind baptism, what we believe. There's, there's a, a lot of truth here. There's some, some dense things here. But hopefully you'll see that this is, this is some precious things to think through that are um, very applicable as we think about how to be obedient to Jesus in this, this area of baptism. So Acts chapter 2, and if you're there, if you'd stand with me, and if you're able, if you'd stand with me, and we'll read. Uh, we're, gonna, we're going to begin in verse 36, <clears throat> and remember, Peter is talking to Jews here. He's talking to the, to the Jews collectively who were responsible for the, the death, uh, along with the with the support of the Roman government for Jesus' crucifixion. And Peter has been sharing the gospel with them, describing who Jesus was and uh, the, the truth that he was the Messiah. And then we come down as he concludes his sermon in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And let me just read a few more verses. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. 
And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord, Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Uh, you may be seated. May God encourage us through his word this morning. Let's pray. And Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to discuss this ordinance that you've given your church. And we thank you for the, the beauty of the picture of baptism, of our relationship with you. And Father, we even thank you this morning for the reality that there are differences of opinion about this issue. Because we recognize that those differences cause us to search your word more carefully And we recognize that these differences uh, cause us to be very careful in how we communicate to one another with gracious words and with with loving thoughts and a desire for unity. And so we thank you for how uh, this grows us in you and in your son, Jesus. Help us to be obedient, to love you, to love one another. And we pray this in your son, Jesus' name. Amen. So here in Acts chapter 2, I hope as we read that, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 2 several times throughout the morning, kind of going back to that. But I hope as we read that together, you saw this close connection between becoming a believer and being baptized and becoming a part of the church. So you have here in Acts chapter 2, people listening to Peter's message, and then as they hear Peter's message, they respond with faith, they ask what they're to do, and they, they believe Peter's word, they receive it, and as they receive his word, they're baptized, and as they're, they're baptized, they become a, a part of the church. And As we think about that, that picture, we think back also to what we looked at last week in Matthew 28, and we saw that Jesus tells his disciples that they're to make more disciples, they're to teach, and they're to, to baptize people in his name, the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And as we think about that instruction that Jesus gave his disciples, and as we think about the importance that baptism has on the development of the church here in Acts chapter 2, we realize that we need to be obedient to our Lord Jesus Christ when it comes to baptism. And as we mentioned last week, even though all who would call themselves Christians agree on that point, as we get down into the how we're to be obedient to that, there are significant differences of opinion. And, as I mentioned last week, not only are there significant differences of opinion, there are significant differences about how significant our differences of opinion are, right? And so there's, there's some huge challenges here as we talk about this issue. And let me just reiterate what I said last week. I'm going to be a lot of reiterating this morning. But uh, let me reiterate this. Uh, I hope that my tone reflects my heart this morning. I hope the tone as I speak about these issues reflects my heart. Because uh, my my heart, I hope, is one of of, of a lot of graciousness and and love. And even, uh, even some sadness, even some sorrow. I received an email just yesterday from a, a, a very sweet young lady, and she has a different position on this area of baptism than, than I do, and, and, and our church does. And so she, as she was thinking through what 
that meant for her and, and her membership here. I could just, as I read her email, it caused me a lot of, 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 of sorrow as I saw how this, hurt, this issue hurt her. And so this is, not, um, this is not an issue we solve quickly necessarily. It's an issue we work through together. And it's an issue that I think God has graciously brought into our lives in, in many different ways. Some of us, all of us have uh, the need to be more obedient in this area. Some, some of us need to grow in our understanding. Some of us need to uh, grow in our ability to, all of us need to grow in our ability to apply what baptism means. There's a lot of growth for a lot of us, all of us in this, in this area. And I hope that as we talk about these things, my tone is, is very gentle. And uh, for, for sure, as I've talked with the elders about this issue, our hearts are very gentle uh, toward those that, that we're shepherding who are in a different place than we are. So let's, uh, let's do this. Let's kind of recap a little bit of what we talked about last week, and then uh, we're going to begin talking about the third, and then next week, again, uh, two weeks from now, answering some practical questions, Lord willing. And uh, my, my fear, there's a lot of material I have, I have here. I have like, literally, I have over twice as much material here as I normally have. And so I, I don't know how far, I'm going to try to get as far as I got first service, kind of into the same place. Um, my fear is that I will kind of get to the part of the message where I talk about the argument for infant baptism, and I'll run out of time, and we'll be a church that leaves an infant baptism for two weeks, which I, I suppose worse things have happened, but we'll see. We'll see how far we get. Uh, here's, the, here's the first thing, remember this. Uh, baptism is a sign for believers. Okay, Baptism is a sign for believers. And the first thing we said is, well, what is baptism? And we came up with this definition. This is from Bobby Jameson's book, Going Public. A baptism is a public profession of faith and repentance, which signifies cleansing, forgiveness, union with Christ, new life in Christ, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and new creation. And kind of two main things there in that definition. First of all is the idea of profession. As we think about baptism, we recognize we're professing our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're professing this reality that we've turned from sin and placed our faith in Jesus Christ. There's a profession publicly letting everyone know this is what I have done. And then it's also a sign. It signifies what has taken place within me spiritually by God's grace through faith. And as we think about this, this sign aspect, remember a sign is not the same thing as the, the thing itself. It's a sign of what's taken place internally. And remember I, I mentioned there's nothing, this is so important for us to understand, there's nothing magical in what I say, there's nothing magical in what I do when I baptize someone or when another elder here baptizes someone. And there's nothing magical about the water at five points, although we are very grateful that Five Points lets us use a, a public pool in which to baptize people, and uh, they do a great job, by the way, keeping that thing uh, in tip-top shape. We're grateful to them, grateful for this, this, these facilities, but nothing magical, right? Nothing magical about that water, nothing magical about me. It's a sign. It signifies something. So that, that's what baptism is. It's a profession and a sign. And the second thing is we thought about baptism as a sign for believers. We said, well, what does baptism do? And we said, well, baptism identifies you as a Christian. You're telling people publicly, look, I'm, I'm a Christian, and it unites you with the local church. You say, well, does it, does it make me a part of the church? And, and yes and no. In the sense that uh, the, the local church is a, a body of people who've identified themselves as believers and have said, we're covenanting together to do life together, baptism does make you a part of that. It's this, it's this entry into that visible church. 
Now, you could also make the argument, what about the, the big church, like all Christians everywhere? And, and you, I, I guess you could say, well, in that sense, no, because we're, we enter into that church through faith in Jesus Christ alone. But those who are part of this, this big church are called to be baptized and identify themselves with a local church, and that's what happens in baptism. So baptism is a sign for believers, and we look, it's a profession, it's a sign, and that uh, brings us to the second thing that I think is important for us to think about, that baptism is a sign for all believers. Okay? Baptism is a sign for all believers. And we saw last week, number one, there's a command to be baptized, and we thought about what Jesus said in Matthew 28. 19 through 20, and beyond, we looked at that, that passage and, and others. And we also looked, and if your Bibles are still open, look there. If they're not, open them again and look here at Acts 2, or I guess digitally scroll to Acts 2. And listen again to what, what Peter says here in verse 38. Peter, as they respond to what he's communicated, he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, and then notice that word, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we'll look at the verse 39 and beyond in in a moment, but think there about that word, for. What is Peter saying? Some have said, well, what that means maybe is that to have your sins forgiven, there are two things you do. You repent and you're baptized, and your sins are forgiven. How do you get your sins forgiven? Two things. And I don't think that's what Peter's saying. That contradicts other things we see in Scripture, and we'll talk about that more as we go. Some have said, well, maybe, and this is a possibility, maybe he means you are baptized as a result of your sins being forgiven. So it means for in that sense. On the occasion of, that, that word that's translated for sometimes means on the occasion of. And so on the occasion of you repenting, placing your faith in Jesus Christ, your sins are being forgiven. On that occasion, that's the occasion to be baptized. And that's certainly a possibility. But I think there's also this idea that what Peter is saying is that people who are genuinely repentant, who have just recognized that what they did and what they or even maybe uh, associated with remotely in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. They're repenting of that, and they are now, instead of participating in the death of Jesus Christ, his crucifixion, they're identifying themselves with Christ. In other words, genuine repentance for Peter's listeners involved publicly identifying themselves with Christ. I denied him as Messiah, I denied Jesus as Messiah. Now, I've placed my faith in him. Romans 10, I'm publicly professing my faith in him. Genuine faith is going to include with it a profession of some sort. And that's what Peter's calling them to do. And now we kind of come to number two, the, the relationship between baptism and membership. And this is really where we stopped last week, kind of in this area. And there was some confusion here. Let me, let me see if I can say things a little bit more clearly here. We looked at Matthew 16 and we looked at Matthew 18, and both of these passages talk about the authority that the church has. Matthew 16 talks about how the church has the authority to bind and loose and, and to uphold sound doctrine. Matthew 18 talks about how the church has the authority to, to declare publicly who is in and outside of the church. And what I said as we looked at this passage is that you and I need to recognize that the church has a tremendous amount of authority. It's a real authority that the church has been given by God. But here's what we need to make sure we also understand. Uh, this baptism, this authority that the church has is not intrinsic authority. 
In other words, it's not just authority that's given to one individual, one individual guy who gets to stand up there and say, you know what, uh, here's what I think. Uh, I'm the pastor of the church, and I have this authority, so in the church you're in, you're out, <laughs> you are definitely out, you are on the borderline, so, you know, Pastor's Appreciation Month is coming up, we'll see what happens. You know, th- that's not how it works. It's not one individual that has this authority, and it's not even us collectively as a church having authority that we just kind of arbitrarily decide, okay, uh, you know what, next month, let's make, a, let's make members, the people who are the, the best dressers, and the month after that, people with cats. I mean, that's not how our authority works either, right? The authority of the church is, is much more sacred than that. We've been given an authority that is a derived authority. It's the authority that God has that's revealed in his word. And he says, okay, this is, this is what it means to be a believer. Now, church, you're in charge of of, of helping one another understand how that looks practically and, and calling one another to account. It's kind of like the authority that a, a referee has or uh, an official in a football game. You know, they're, they're playing the football game and, and an official, is, as he or she is, is doing the, the game there, doesn't have the ability to say, you know what, uh, this, this possession, let's, let's just let you have as many turns as you want until you can get to the end zone. Or, or let's, instead of throwing the ball... This way, you can throw it any way you want, or you know what, why this team, you go ahead and have 13 people instead of 11. A ref doesn't have that ability to do that, right? Well, what does an official do? They study the NFL playbook. They say, okay, this is what the rules are, and now I'm going to do the best that I can applying them on the field. And do they get it right all the time? No. Is there absolute perfection? No. Is their authority real? Absolutely. And so what the official is trying to do is trying to implement authority that's outside of himself or herself, as these guys play football. Now, to continue this analogy a little bit further, imagine the chaos that would reign if there wasn't an official there, right? Even if, even if there were 22 people on the field there who were saying, you know, I want to obey the rules, but how well of a job would they do assessing themselves, you stepped out of bounds. I don't think I stepped out of bounds. I'm pretty sure I was in bounds. No, you stepped out of bounds. What you and I need is accountability. You and I need an organization in which we covenant together to come alongside us and say, look, here, Daniel, here's what you're not seeing in your life, and here's what God's word says. Daniel, you have some blinders on in this area, and you think things are okay with you, but I'm telling you, according to God's word, they're not. And, and here's, here's the point of application as we think about the relationship between baptism and membership. The applica- one application is, I can't live the Christian life on my own. I need other brothers and sisters in Christ to come alongside me and hold me accountable. And I better listen to them. Number two, and another application here, and, and I didn't dwell on this much last week, but I'd certainly acknowledge it's true. If a church abuses its authority... And some of you have been in circumstances where you've been in a church that abuses its authority. In other words, instead of using God's word as its standard for how it's going to encourage people, it doesn't use God's word. It's, maybe it's legalistic or maybe the, the, um, the things they tell people that they're to do are, are unbiblical. We've all encountered churches that abuse their authority. I, I don't have a responsibility to submit to an unbiblical church, a church who's a, who is abusing her authority. But... I'd better be very sure if I decide to step away from a church that 
because I believe it's abusing its authority, I better be sure that it's really abusing its authority and it's not just saying things I don't want to hear, right? That's, that's to all of us, right? And the third application here as we think about baptism is baptism, baptism is the means by which the, th- the church, that God has given us this authority, baptism is the means by which the church publicly says this person is a believer, this person has placed their faith in Jesus Christ, and it's the means by which the church announces that to one another and to the world. Okay, and that's baptism and the church. In fact, look there again at, at Acts two, and look at look at this close connection here. The church has the authority to deliver this message. It's not Peter doesn't have this authority by himself. It's not like Peter's just this guy with all this authority. It's a derived authority. And he gives this message, and they respond. And look at verse 41. It says, so those who received his word were baptized. So they hear the message, respond in faith, they're baptized. And then what does it say? And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Added, added where? Added to heaven? Added to the local church? Well, both, right? Both. There's this idea that those, those who become believers, all of them are baptized, and all of them become a part of the local church. And it says, verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And you go down to verse 44, all who believed were together and had all things in common. They're selling their possessions, their belongings, distributing the, the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, how does that identification with the church begin? Here in Acts chapter 2, that identification begins with baptism. That's the means by which people publicly declare, hey, I'm a part of this group. And that's how God has designed it. So that brings us here to this, this third thing that I want us to talk about, and that is that baptism is a sign for only believers. Okay, And, and this is, uh, is going to be the hardest section in many ways, and we're not going to, to finish it this morning we're going to kind of begin to talk about some of these things, and I've really struggled to make sure I word these things the right way. I still didn't, uh, still didn't totally nail it. I think you'll see. But you know, I've, I've, on Friday, even I, was, I kept on going back downstairs to uh, Rachel or to upstairs to Mike, who were working on the, the the PowerPoint, and I went to Kirsten, who's doing the notes. I said, "Okay, I want to reword it one more time, one more time, and keep on trying to reword this." And so hopefully. Uh, I still didn't get it, but uh, hopefully, hopefully you'll at least uh, be able to see Scripture uh, through this, even though if my wording of uh, interpretation of Scripture isn't perfect. And also, notice, you'll notice this. I, didn't, uh, I have three very distinct groups here that we're talking about, and I'm not lumping them together in terms of levels of agreement with them, or I'm not saying all these guys or ladies agree together or that they're all the same. But uh, there's kind of different understandings that differ from what I believe Scripture teaches about baptism being a sign for only believers. And there are many other groups I could have included. I could have, you know, could have talked about uh, liberal, liberal Protestants. We could have talked about uh, Anglicans or, or Methodists. And uh, I, know, I know actually we have a lot of Methodists. I don't know if you still consider yourself Methodists. A lot of you are uh, maybe slowly reforming Methodists or Methodists who just we love a lot. I mean, so we, I could have talked about Methodism, but... Um, uh, there, there are several denominations I could have talked about, but their understanding isn't as um, one of all, it could fit into one of the categories we're already talking about, or it's such a diverse denomination or diverse organization that it's hard to speak as what one group believes. In fact, I actually, uh, 
actually emailed and was kind of uh, messaging uh, my friend uh, Jason Wolver at, at uh, Crossroads United Methodist Church here in town. He, I told him, I, I consider you a, a good friend and a bad Methodist, um, <laughs> which he, I think, laughed at. But, uh, you know, I, and try to help, him, hey, help me understand, and, uh, you know, he agreed with me that there's, there's a great plethora of understandings of what, bab, uh, what, it means to, what baptism is and what it means within the Methodist church, and so I, I didn't go into that. I did read a, a document called... Um, by water and spirit, but even that had a lot of different understandings. So anyway, there's more we could talk about, but hopefully these things uh, help us as we, we talk about these issues. And again, um, I don't want this to be too academic, but, but uh, you're going to encounter these in your, your Christian life. And uh, some of these people who hold these different views are our brothers and sisters in Christ, and I think we owe it to them uh, to understand as much as we can what they believe. And... Uh, for those with whom we, we severely disagree, like the first group I'm going to talk about, um, we need to at least understand how we can communicate graciously, right? So let me, let me just dive into this. Um, the first is the Roman Catholic Church and its understanding of baptism. And uh, we disagree very, very strongly uh, between ourselves and the Catholics about baptism. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church believes that baptism should be done to infants and that baptism is necessary for salvation, that it's necessary for salvation, and the act of baptism itself causes regeneration, rebirth. In fact, uh, I was reading through the, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, and, and let me just kind of quote a little bit from it. It, uh, it reads, Holy baptism is the basis of the whole Christian life, the gateway to life in the Spirit, and the door which gives access to the other sacraments. And again, the sacraments are these means of grace and in the Catholic Church, there's a belief that in conjunction with faith, these sacraments are things that bring about salvation. Uh, through baptism, we are, listen to this, through baptism, that's the physical act of baptism, through that, we are freed from sin. So original sin is dealt with as an infant is baptized. And, and we're freed from sin and reborn as sons of God. We become members of Christ, are incorporated in the church, and made shares in her mission. Uh, the sacrament is also called the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, for it signifies and actually brings about the birth of water and the Spirit, without which no one can enter the kingdom of God. In other words, uh, baptism is this, this means of salvation. It's not just something that signifies something that took place spiritually, but it, it's the means by which it comes about. Now, um, let, let, me say this, uh, let me say this strongly, but uh, hopefully uh, gently. This is something that's it's pretty forceful. Um, the Roman Catholic understanding of baptism, I believe, not only undermines the gospel, but contradicts it. Okay? I believe what they're teaching about baptism contradicts the gospel. What does the gospel tell us? The gospel tells us that a person is saved not on any works that they've done in and of themselves, but a person is saved by placing their faith in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. Okay? Now, what... That statement says, I believe, contradicts it. In fact, uh, the Roman Catholic Church in her history has uh, pronounced an anathema, an eternal condemnation on anyone who says exactly what I've just said. Okay, And now that's why, and again, this, this is, uh, I hope you, hope you capture my tone here. That's why when I refer to the Roman Catholic Church as an institution, uh, I, don't, I, don't refer to the peop- I don't refer to that institution as brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, I may have individual Roman Catholics. I may have many, many uh, Roman Catholics who are my brothers and sisters in Christ. But in terms of the institution, 
I, I refer to them as, as friends because I, I do love them, but that's not the gospel. In fact, there's an anathema in my, my belief, according to what Scripture says, there's an anathema, eternal condemnation declared against anyone who does hold to the gospel. So that understanding of baptism is contrary to the gospel. It's contrary to the, it contradicts the gospel that we're saved by faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, by God's grace alone. That's, uh, that's the problem there with that understanding. A baptism, in their understanding, isn't a profession of faith. It's not a sign of what's taking place internally. It's, it's the means. It's how salvation begins to be worked about. And so that's, that's a wrong understanding of what baptism does, what it is for. I've been excluded from fellowship from the Roman Catholic Church because of uh, we, those of us who hold that salvation is by faith alone, have been excluded from fellowship uh, by the Roman Catholic Church because of, of what we're saying about the gospel here. Now, the second uh, group that I want us to think about, and again, I hope I'm, I'm gracious here, is, is the seeker-sensitive movement and baptism. Now, what is the seeker-sensitive movement? I, I'm, I'm lumping a, a lot of different churches and movements into this, this category, and what I mean by this is, is this a movement that has taken place in the evangelical church over the last few decades that is concerned with, uh, has a right concern with reaching as many people as possible, but a, a wrong philosophy in how to do it. So what I believe a biblical philosophy is, of ministry, so the biblical philosophy of ministry says, okay, what does scripture tell me that I'm to do? What does scripture say that I'm supposed to do on a Sunday morning? What are the what does Scripture say about how I'm supposed to preach? What does Scripture say about how I'm supposed to worship? What does Scripture say about the purpose of the church? All the, I begin with that, and then after I understand, okay, this is what God wants me to do, then I, I look out and I say, okay, how do I do that in this cultural context? And the seeker-sensitive movement has kind of reversed the order of that with some profound implications. The seeker-sensitive movement says, okay, how do I in this culture, get as many people as possible in my doors, and, and, that, and then they think through, okay, what does God want me to do, and how can I kind of use some Bible phrases and get them to kind of agree to some biblical truths as long as I keep them in the door, okay? Which I think, again, is a, a wrong understanding of, of what a church is to do. How has that affected baptism? It, it's affected baptism. That movement has affected baptism in, again, some significant ways, Instead of saying, okay, I'm going to take a person and I'm going to talk with them about the gospel as a church, and then as they make a profession of faith, and I know that they understand the gospel, we're going to baptize them. Instead of saying that, they say, okay, how can I get as many people as wet as possible, as quickly as possible? In fact, sometimes there are these services in which they'll, they'll say, okay, anyone who wants to be baptized, come and be baptized. And, they, and there's, no, there's no talking to them. There's no, okay, hey, do you understand the gospel? Do you understand who Jesus is? Do you understand what sin is? It's just, hey, do you want to get baptized? Do you love Jesus? Okay, let's get, let's get wet. Okay. That's, a, that's a significant departure from what the church has historically understood baptism is and the purpose of baptism. For example, for example, uh, I few years ago, heard about a church in North Carolina that was uh, so intent on getting as many people baptized so there'd be this, this exciting service that they had, I, I don't even know the word to use for it or the phrase, um, like fake baptizing people in the, in the audience. And so they'd say, okay, who wants to get baptized? And these, like, these fake people would, I mean, they're real people, but they, they would stand up and start walking forward so that other people would stand. And they had they'd already been baptized. And they were just kind of like these these guys and ladies designed to, to 
gin up this, this enthusiasm. So a lot of people baptized real quickly. Okay, that's, that's not how the church has historically understood what baptism is to be about. You look at the early church and you see that many of the creeds that were developed were creeds around helping people understand what they were doing as they were baptized. And the first document that we have from the end of the first century describing a baptismal service talked about the need for those being baptized to confess their faith in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, encourage a time of fasting, prayer, and repentance. So I believe that our responsibility is to make, people, make sure people understand the gospel before they're baptized so they can rightly make a profession of faith. And some people say, well, what about the early church and how they baptized quickly? Here in Acts chapter 2, it seems pretty quick. And it does. It, it does and it doesn't, right? I mean, Peter gives a, a pretty lengthy sermon to people who already had a basic understanding of the covenants. And then even as you come down to verse um, to, to verse. As he's talking about being baptized, oh, I'm sorry, verse 40, it says, with many other words he bore witness. And so there's this making sure that they understand what they're doing and who they're identifying with and what it means to to be baptized. And so I think that needs to take place. Okay, that brings us to the third group I want us to begin discussing. And that's a group I would refer to as Reformed Pado-Baptists. And Maybe both of those words are a little uh, difficult for you to understand. Let's start with the, the second word, pedo-baptist. Uh, pedo uh, refers to a child, and so we're talking here about infant baptism. And reformed uh, is a word with a lot of different meanings for different people. Uh, pe- some people associate it with Calvinism, and that's an appropriate association, but it goes beyond that. Uh, this is a group of people that historically have hold uh, have held to what we call the solas of the Reformation, the, the onlys. So like you're saved by faith alone, through grace alone, a faith in Christ alone, uh, according to Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. And so that's traditionally what Reformed, people who consider themselves Reformed are excited about those, those alones that were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. They're, they're passionate about those things, the the sovereignty of God uh, and his, his work in man's salvation. And that's uh, typically what Reformed has, has meant. Uh, if that's the definition, I would certainly consider myself Reformed, even though many people who would call themselves Reformed, uh, maybe they wouldn't want that association with me, but certainly uh, I would consider myself a part of, of that movement. And uh, this, this probably uh, hits to us as a church closest, okay, as we talk about this for several reasons. Uh, this is a group that's very near and dear to us because we uh, have a lot of us in this, this church who are from that. And then also because we have so much in common with our Reformed Pado baptist brothers and sisters. Uh, we have the same understanding of the authority of Scripture. We have the same understanding of the gospel. We have the same understanding of, of the sovereignty of God. And I would tell you this too. If I found myself in a new community having to, to go to a church, and there was a Reformed, Pado baptist church in that community that, that t- preached expositionally and, and held to the sovereignty of God and, and the glory of God, uh, you would find me in that church way sooner than you would find me in a, in a seeker-sensitive church with some sort of circus going on on Sunday morning, even if we held the same thing on baptism, okay? And so uh, I, I feel a great affinity for my uh, Reformed, Pado baptist brothers and sisters, and it, this is hard for me. Okay, this is hard for me. And the reason it's hard for me is how can we be so close on so many things and, and be off on this one? Okay? 
As I think about uh, the email I received yesterday, how can we have a position that excludes them from full membership in our church? That's a hard one. It's a hard one. And what I'm going to do today is I'm going to open a bunch of can. I'm going to open up a big can of worms, and I'm just going to leave them out there. We're not going to get all this, these things settled this morning, but let me just kind of walk through some things here. Uh, so we would consider ourselves at Bethany Community Church credo Baptists. That word credo Baptist means creed, the idea of you, you profess something before you're baptized. And so we're credo Baptists. The other position is pedo Baptist. And uh, I was reading something by John Frame. And I love, John Frame is a pedo Baptist, Reformed pedo Baptist. And, and listen to how he describes the differences between us. Listen to what he says, and I think he's exactly right. He says, there's no command in the New Testament either to baptize infants or not baptize them. Baptists, that's credo-baptists, that's me, those of us at Bethany Community Church here, our, our doctrinal statement. Baptists say that since there's no command to baptize infants, we shouldn't do it. Pedo-baptists say that the total biblical evidence requires us to baptize the children of believers unless there's a New Testament command forbidding it. Since there's no command, we must baptize the children of believers. Since there is no such command saying don't baptize, we must baptize the children of believers. So it is a question of the burden of proof. Baptists say the burden of proof is on those who would argue infant baptism, and since explicit proof is lacking, we shouldn't do it. Pedo-Baptists, those on the other side of the fence, say the reverse. The burden of proof is on those who would forbid infant baptism. So uh, let, that's, I think that's exactly right. Credo-Baptists, those of us say, look, there's... There's no biblical instruction, and we'd say more, but there's no biblical instruction to baptize. We shouldn't do it. Pato Baptists say, look, as you look at the argument of Scripture, we need to baptize. In fact, let me walk through uh, the Pato Baptist argument here in, in brief, and, and I'm going to try to do it as clearly as I can, and maybe, um, maybe I'd fail on some, some points here since this isn't my position, but let me, let me try to walk through this. And again, I think you need to know this. Even if you say, look, Daniel, I, I was born a Baptist, I'm going to stay a Baptist, my children are going to be Baptist, I don't even bathe my children just to be safe, I mean, I'm, I'm total die-in-the-wool Baptist. I'm, look, you need to understand, you need to understand this uh, for the sake of our brothers and sisters in Christ with whom we, we disagree, and because uh, someday you're, you're, maybe uh, you're young, maybe your children will, will begin uh, attending a, a pedo-Baptist church, or maybe you'll be in a community where uh, that's where you'll end up, and you, you need to know what, what what they believe and, and how it differs from what you might believe. And here's, here's the argument, and this is best as I can put it in a short amount of time. Number one, circumcision in the Old Testament was the right of entrance into Israel, as baptism is now the right of entrance into the visible church. Okay, so Old Testament, how did you identify yourself as a part of Israel? Circumcision. New Testament, how do you identify yourself as part of the church? Baptism. Now, is that a true statement? Absolutely, right? You look at Genesis 17. That's what we just talked about a few weeks ago. Acts 2, what we've been talking about this morning. So that's, that's true. Now, I believe that this is what John Frame writes, but I think he even goes further than this, right? Because it's not just that they're both entry into the, the covenant. Really, they're equating, the, the, the Pado-Baptist equates the two. Circumcision is fulfilled in baptism. They, they become almost synonymous, Here's the second part of the argument. It is clear in both Testaments that God's covenant is for us and our children. Okay? So it's clear in both 
Testaments that God's covenant is for us and our children. Is that true? Well, certainly there's truth in that, right? Genesis, well, we've been looking at the story of Abraham and what's promised to his descendants. You come to Genesis 26 and God's promises to Isaac for this land to you and your offspring. You come to Genesis 28 and God makes the same promise to Jacob. It's for you and your offspring. He says that in uh, Genesis 26, 13. Uh, Moses to the people in Deuteronomy 29 says, Keep the words of this covenant, do them, that you may prosper in all that, that you do. You are standing today, all of you, before the Lord your God, the heads of your tribes, your elders, your officers, all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, the sojourner who is in your camp, from the one who chops your wood to the one who draws your water, so that you may enter into the sworn covenant of the Lord your God, which the Lord your God is making with you today, that he may establish you today as his people, that he may be his, your God as he promised you and as he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So what do we see there? There's this, as, as you look at this covenant that God is making with the people there in Deuteronomy, it's mindful of their children and of the fathers who've gone before them. Does that continue in the New Testament? I, I think there's some evidence that it does, right? Luke 18 talks about Jesus' love for the children. Don't hinder the children from coming to me. Uh, Jesus, uh, so Jesus has this, this idea that the children are included in this, and this passage that we're looking at this morning, what, is, what does Peter say? He says that this promise is for you and for your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Now, this, he, he's speaking to a Jewish audience, and he's using language of, the Old Test, of an Old Testament covenant here. And so I, I think that there's a specific application to the Jews, but I think it's fair to say, look, as we look at Scripture— we see God constantly working, not just with individuals, but with households. Is it reasonable for us to believe that God, God's, God's plan, that our children are, are part of God's covenant plan as well? I, I think it is reasonable to assume that, to take hope in that. First Corinthians 7, we have the idea of children being made holy by the belief of their parents. And so I think there is some truth to that. But, but and we'll talk about this more next week, as you see this, this argument developed, what you see is not just that both covenants are for our children. What we begin to see that the Paedo-Baptists do is say, okay, the Abrahamic covenant is just a spiritual covenant, and it's, it's synonymous, it becomes essentially synonymous with the new covenant. In other words, what you see the Paedo-Baptist position arguing here is that there's great continuity. Old Testament, New Testament, there's great continuity. And, and I would argue that I'm not I'm kind of getting ahead of myself a little bit here, but I would argue that there's there's too much continuity, not not en- not enough awareness of the discontinuity between circumcision, baptism, Abrahamic covenant, new covenant. We'll talk more about that next week, I think. But bottom line is this: bottom line is that they come to this conclusion. Number three, therefore, there's no reason to exclude children from baptism. Okay, no reason to do it because. Uh, because, of the similar, because of the continuity of the covenants, because of uh, what God has promised our children, there's no reason to exclude the ch- as children from baptism. So even though it's, it's not in Scripture, even though there's no explicit examples of children being baptized, you would need an example of them not being baptized to make this, to make this case. Okay. So let me, um, let me give... Let me, um, let, me, let me first of all say this... Um, those of us who come from a more, uh, many of you come from, like I do, a more dispensational background, not, not a covenant background. And the, the problem with dispensationalism, in, in my mind, was that it saw such, such great 
distinctions between how God works. So God is doing this, and then he does this, and then he does this. And there's no continuity. There's no sense of how God is working this, this big plan. So as we read our Reformed Pado-Baptist brothers and sisters, we should have a great appreciation for the continuity they see in the covenants. You see, the Abraham covenant is connected to the new covenant. As there's this Abraham, we talked about this a few months ago. There's the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant becomes a, uh, an extension of that, and the, the Davidic covenant is, is continuing God's promise of fulfilling what he promised Abraham. Everything is fulfilled in Christ. Christ inaugurates the new covenant. These things are connected. These things are connected, and our brothers and sisters who are Reformed Pado baptists see that and help us grasp that, even though I think they've gone too far in the continuity that they see. So they see continuity of the people of God. They see continuity of the covenants that we need to acknowledge. So here's, here's the response. Uh, here, here's my response, the, the credo-baptist response. And it, it essentially uh, comes down to this. If you think about these three arguments that we've laid out, there's, there's A, that the circumcision and baptism are, are similar, and then there's B, that these covenants are similar, and then C, therefore we need to baptize our children. And in my mind, I agree with A and I agree with B as... as, as with some nuances, but I don't see A plus B equals C. That, that's kind of the bottom line of, of where I'm at as I think about this argument for infant baptism. In fact, I, I kind of thought about it like this. Think about so if A, and then you have B, and then you have C. If, if A is, is this statement, um, many women like diamonds and find diamonds beautiful, and statement B is that my wife is a woman, and statement C is, therefore, I should buy my wife a diamond for her birthday. There, there's some A plus B doesn't necessarily equal C. It could equal C, but it doesn't necessarily equal C. How do I find out what my wife wants for her birthday? Well, maybe she would find diamonds beautiful. Maybe she wouldn't. Uh, she's certainly a woman, but that doesn't mean she has all the characteristics of every woman. And maybe she'd want a diamond for her for her birthday, but maybe she'd want something else. Maybe she would find a diamond's a little bit too expensive, and maybe there's, there's something she'd rather spend her money on. How would I find out, how would I find out what she really wants for her birthday? Well, I would listen to what she said about her birthday. And I would, as I listen to what she said about her birthday, I would understand what to get her. Now, here's how that relates, I think, to baptism. I, I agree that there's continuity in these covenants of God. I agree that there's continuity in these, these signs. But I think we have to look at what God says about baptism and what it's doing and the discontinuity to help us understand what we're really supposed to do here and how we're supposed to exercise it. And here's, I'm only going to get, I think, to this, this first one here very quickly. Number one, as we think about the credo-baptist response, I, I believe that infant baptism is inconsistent with the purpose of baptism. And here, here's what we've seen, Remember? What is baptism? It's a profession of our faith and repentance, and it's a sign of what's taken place within us spiritually. And listen to what Paul says about baptism again in Romans 6. He says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We are buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And what we see here is that the person who has been baptized physically is a person who has been baptized spiritually. And we can't say that this is true of infants. In fact, look at Galatians, let me just read Galatians 3, and Galatians three twenty-five. but now that faith has come, in other words, faith has arrived, we're no longer under a guardian, says Paul. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. How? 
through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And quite simply, infants cannot do this, right? Infants have not done this. They can't do this. Therefore, this is an appropriate sign to be given to them. As we think about our salvation, how we enter into this new covenant, I think this is very important that we make sure we communicate this clearly to our children, what the purpose of baptism is, because it goes back to the gospel. We'll talk more about this next week. But what is the spiritual condition of the children in our church who have not yet placed their faith in Jesus Christ for their eternal life? Does Galatians 3 apply to them? Can you look at a child who hasn't placed his or her faith in Christ and say, you know what, you are in Christ, you're a son of God through faith. I I don't believe you can say that. What Bible passage applies to a young person who hasn't placed their faith in Jesus Christ? It's Ephesians 2. Children of wrath. Now, are are they part of, are they, they, can we have confidence that they're, they're going to place their faith in Jesus Christ? Can we have confidence that God's going to deliver them? Absolutely. But I I believe they're dead in their trespasses and sin until they place their faith in Jesus Christ. We cannot say that the the means by which salvation occurs has occurred in a person who hasn't placed their faith in Christ. We'll talk more about that in the coming weeks, but I believe it's very, very important that as we think about, even beyond infant baptism, as we think about our attitude toward our children, there needs to be a confident expectation, I believe, and this is where the Pado baptists I think, get it exactly right. I believe that God is going to work within the lives of my children. And I have a confident expectation of that through his, through his promise. But at the same time, I recognize that their faith right now is not in Jesus Christ. And I need to make sure that I'm clearly, clearly presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ to them so they can have their sins dealt with as only Christ can through faith. It's so important. So much more to talk about. Next week, we'll, we'll finish up talking just for a few minutes about this, what we believe about uh, credo-baptism, baptism by uh, people who have declared their faith in Jesus Christ. And then we'll just talk about a lot of practical questions that deal with this. I, I hope you're encouraged, and I hope that we are, continue to minister to one another in the love of Christ as we're united in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this good news of Jesus. We thank you that we have the ability, uh, by your grace, to uh, be obedient to you and to to, uh, respond with love for you and love for one another. Help us to do so with great joy and expectation of of your uh, blessing in our life as we pursue you. We do pray for our children. Father, we recognize that there are uh, many of our children who have not yet placed their faith in your son, Jesus, and We pray that we'd be diligent to communicate the good news to them, the good news that even though they're sinners, Christ died for their sins and they can receive eternal life through faith in him. Help us to communicate that clearly, passionately, constantly, that our children will respond in faith. Protect them, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.